Welcome to Torch Time Tales Presents Find Your Wavelength, a thought and feeling provoking podcast which explores the spiritual, scientific, and psychic interactions of our realities. Hi, my name is Florence Faith Matheson. I'm here again with author Johnny L. Whitmore for another episode of Torch Time Tales Presents Find Your Wavelength. Today we're going to talk about spiritual development and we're going to take a particularly close look at the church. Johnny? This is a continued conversation from our first episode around each of our individual spiritual developments. It occurred to me to start with my mother. When I asked her as a young child, who were my relations? She told me I was a little bit of a Heinz 57, which left me curious, but I pressed her for more information. And finally, she said, well, you're a little bit of everybody. And that was a critical piece of information for me to hear. And as you know, I believe fully and wholly we're all connected. We're all related. We appear to share access to an infinite mind. And the universe is, in fact, interactive. I know for a fact that every person in the world can be traced back to one mother and one father. And our common father is 275,000 years old. That's just so very exciting to me. One of the things I can tell you that I have learned in the process of my own spiritual development is that I realized along the way, each time I had a breakthrough in understanding, it led me further along my path. And what I now know to be true is that breakthroughs in understanding are pathways to self-realization. That's a critical piece of all of this. That's really interesting, Johnny. And I've definitely had my own breakthroughs in understanding, but it feels to me as if this is a hippie concept or a new generation concept. Why isn't this something talked about with the common man? None of us have been educated to understand the actual workings of our minds. I had to graduate from college, move across the country, and go to work for the Federal Reserve Bank before I eventually learned from one of my first spiritual mentors that the key to all of this is in our attention. Our attention is whatever it's focused upon or captured by. That definition is critical to understanding how our minds actually operate. It's also critical for understanding how to navigate to different levels of consciousness. Our attention is also referred as our eternal observer, which was an enormous breakthrough for me in understanding. One of the things I know to be true is that enlightenment, which we talked a little bit about last time, It's mentioned throughout the Bible. It's mentioned throughout the sutras 
in Buddhism, enlightenment happens in a moment. And that piece of enlightenment that we've garnered then will be able to build upon itself. In other words, waves of enlightenment follow additional waves of enlightenment. And eventually we get to the point in our spiritual development where we ultimately are able to overcome consciousness entirely. Let's talk about this word enlightenment. And going back to what you said about we are not educated on the workings of our mind in cultures such as Hindu cultures and Buddhist cultures, it is very well understood that everyone will reach this thing called enlightenment or nirvana. And I think in the Western culture, we don't ever talk about enlightenment unless we're referring to these other Eastern cultures. And something that I only understood very recently was that Jesus was actually an enlightened being and Jesus reached enlightenment. And I think that's something that is really left out of every service. Well, you know, the church has spent years debating whether we should be going to worship on Saturday or going to worship on Sunday. The church as a whole, hundreds of years ago, moved to Sunday worship, and they were accused of pandering to the pagans by doing so, because pagans generally celebrated on Sunday. The Jewish faith generally celebrates their worship on Saturday. To your point, Flo, spirituality isn't something that happens one day a week. And to your point, there are many Eastern cultures that have the strength of mind that do practice an attention-based focus. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened in Western religious practices, partly because of false belief that stilling the mind would make room for the devil, as we discussed with the example of John Ireland in episode one. When we think back to Jesus being an enlightened being, a quote comes to mind, and I don't know my Bible verses very well, but Jesus is basically saying, I do all of these mystical, magical things so that you can follow in my footsteps and do them as well. And I think that's something that's really left out of modern Christianity is that worshipers don't understand that they can reach this place that Jesus was able to reach. And a lot of them don't even try. <laughs> that's an important point. I, I'm going to mention Peter Baldwin, who we will come back to in a later episode. One of his early mentors was Maslow. And Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think, is probably an important mention here. Maslow argued that if one's fundamental physical needs and emotional needs are not met, they will not have the peace of mind or capacity to go beyond that. It ties also back to a conversation you and I had earlier, whether spiritual practice is something for everyone or just the wealthy or well-endowed. In fact, see that 
one needs to have a, a fundamental level of physical and emotional well-being to be able to go forward. Okay, so what you're saying is that people need physical security before they can reach these higher mind states. So if someone is hungry, or if someone is being rained on and snowed on, they are probably not going to sit down and say, okay, it's time to meditate now. That's right. Or they're being attacked by an outside force. Very difficult to shift gears to a spiritual place when you're under attack. It also goes back to the roots of consciousness itself, as we were just talking about. Consciousness is all learned behavior. That was new information for me to learn along my path. If it's not learned, much of what we receive is genetically inherited. Scientists now know that much of who we are, much of our personalities, our mannerisms, etc., are inherited. But this idea of consciousness as learned behavior is critical. It allows us the opportunity to understand consciousness is about discernment of the mind. It could also be said consciousness is about discrimination. However, as we know, discrimination has its own load, an emotional load that's attached to it. So what do I mean by this? Consciousness is about discernment or consciousness is about discrimination. At our very essence, it helps us understand the difference between up and down, left and right, green and blue. It discerns differences. What you like and what you don't like. That's right. Which some would argue is a big part of being human, is to decide what is part of you and what is not part of you. Let's talk about levels of consciousness. So we know there's a level of consciousness where you are thinking about your next meal and your shelter and your physical safety. What comes above that? The emotional body comes to mind. So if one is distraught with anguish, if one is possessed by an unrelenting fear, one won't necessarily have the peace of mind to be able to consider beyond that. So there's a certain amount of physical peace that has to be there. There's an amount of emotional peace that has to be there to allow oneself to move one's attention out of consciousness to our lower diaphragm where it can follow the path of our breath in and out. The beautiful part about that is that having meditated, even just the first time, one will immediately experience a relief emotionally, physically, and physiologically in the process. Great answer. I was also thinking about our emotional security and being able to navigate our emotions. What do we think is the level above that? Well, Buddha called it our true law nature. When we can still consciousness, we actually open up the doors to the all that is. This word law sparks something else in my mind. When I think about enlightened beings or even people who are quite spiritually developed, it gives me a sense that they know wrong from right, that they are not people out on the streets 
causing trouble. And um, they might not be people who need to be ruled by other people to tell them what wrong and right is. And in some ways, when you have people who are who are quite spiritually developed, you cannot rule over them because they really are so sure in themselves that you have no power over them. And this brings me back to our point with the church and why would an institution that is supposed to be for helping people, helping people emotionally, helping people in a community sense, or helping people to reach spiritual advancement, why would an institution like this put a cap on people's level of spiritual development? And I think it's because the church really did want to control people, have power over people, lay down a law that others had to follow. You raise a number of good points. One of the things I'm struck by is a scientific finding that was published in this last year. Scientists now understand that most of the known universe is probably conscious that it only takes a certain level of biological complexity for consciousness in a variety of different forms to be present. Okay, so there's piece one. Piece two, I understand utilizing the phrase, our true law nature, triggers folks with the word law because of our experience with laws held over people. It can also be defined as the fundamental nature of our reality. That helps us see it and understand it a little bit better. And to your point, in addition to the divergences across and among the churches, we now understand that much of the original translations were hastily and poorly done. There have been concepts and ideas introduced into the church which did not exist in those original translations. There's further an element here of competition among the churches, which creates a highly unfortunate conflict of interest, because each, in a population of sparse economic resources, each church is going to be fighting for the right to those parishioners and their wallets. We can look back hundreds of years to the experience of Europe to see that because of the extraordinary concentration of churches, there was ever-increasing violence in the form of church using its power over individuals, killing and maiming individuals, having declared them being possessed by the devil and wanting to declare their church as now holding righteousness for God. When economists went back and looked at this years later, they found literally the higher the concentration of the church, the greater the numbers of people who were murdered in Europe. And in fact, in the United States, the contrast is quite telling with far fewer churches in the early days of our country and far fewer European immigrants, the length and duration 
and severity of the issues we saw here were a fraction of what Europe experienced. So you're saying that because there were so many churches in Europe and because they all wanted tithes from the parishioners, they were competing with each other in not so holy ways to hold claim on the pockets of these parishioners. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., the early U.S., we saw a lot less of this happening because there were so many less churches. They didn't need to compete with each other. That's right. I'm a fan of Pope Francis. I think his heart's in the right place. He faces a difficult history and is attempting to try to find ways, I think, to hold church and church fathers accountable. At some point in the last year, after the umpteenth revelation of sexual assault and sexual abuse had come forward, Pope Francis made a quote that stuck with me. He said, I would understand if you would give up on the church, but whatever you do, don't give up on God. I really like that quote. It makes me think about my own relationship to the church. I started going to church when I was a kid and I was a regular parishioner. But around the time that I was in college, I would say that the church became a little too small for me. And now I feel that there's not enough God in church for me. And I feel that my own understanding of God has transcended the understanding of God that is taught in church. And so for me, I go to church because I like the atmosphere and I like to be there. The ideas of God that are spoken about in church are a little too small for me. And I think my own idea of God needs a different container to hold it. The universe is infinite. One of the problems in trying to have these kinds of conversations is that words inevitably limit that which is infinite. Which is why so many people are turning to ways of connecting to spirit that involve emotions and involve movement, not just sitting and listening to a book being read. Johnny, in your book, Torch Time Tales, you speak about an ancestor that you have called Robert Barclay. Can you tell us a little bit about him and his work? I think he came up a little bit in the first podcast. Robert Barclay was Scottish. He was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. One of his uncles was a bishop in Paris. He went to study with him, proved himself to be an extraordinary student, and was invited by his uncle that if he agreed to join the parish there, uh, his uncle would leave him his personal fortune. About the same time, he received a letter from his father, who had served in the military, and his father let him know that he'd reached a decision to lead the family by example and become a Quaker. Robert followed his father's decision. He respectfully declined his uncle's offer. He went back to Scotland. He, he became a Quaker 
at a time where the churches, many of them were becoming more controlling than ever. And eventually he and his group experienced an enormous amount of persecution in the process. Robert Barclay began writing at a fairly young age. He is now considered one of the greatest writers of the 17th century. His epic work is called An Apology for the True Christian Divinity. It is free, accessible, and easy to download over the internet. I'll warn you, it's about 400 pages long. But it is the most exacting review of the Bible I've ever seen done. And in the process, he found that there were extraordinary errors made in the translation, including the error of the insertion of the idea of original sin, which he insisted was nowhere found in the Hebrew or the Greek or the Latin translations that resulted from them. Let's give a brief overview of the history of the Bible before we unpack this any further. The Bible was written in the early AD centuries, and legend says that God delivered the stories to the people and they were written down by scribes. After the Bible was written many, many centuries ago, it was translated into Greek and then into Latin. And during those translations, some things were omitted or inserted into the Bible we know now. And people speculate about whether this was intentional or by accident. But these changes to the Bible have caused it to be a very different text to the original Bible that was written. So the Bible that people are reading today in church is quite different from the original Bible. And this is what Robert Barclay talks about in his book. So could you tell us a little bit more about what he found from retranslating the original Bible and comparing his translation to what was in people's hands at the time? I think we're going to want to do an entire episode on Robert Barclay. I will share that that very premise that the Bible is the infallible word of God sets all of us up for an extraordinary catch-22. It literally makes it very difficult for consciousness to question something that has been deemed to be the invaluable word of God. And that creates a problem for an individual as they begin to understand that it's not working for them. Robert Barclay, one of his most famous quotes from his work was that one could spend a lifetime digesting the hundreds of pages of the Bible and spiritually make no progress. That was an extraordinary ouch and moment of realization for me, how locked in we've been to this text if we are not aware that the translations were suspect, how could we ever begin to question that this is somehow the infallible word of God? Let's talk about this idea of connecting to your higher self or connecting to spirit. 
I think that the Western world really demonizes other cultures' way of connecting to spirit, especially during Barclay's time in the 1800s. In 1700s as well, yeah. And when Europeans were so-called discovering other cultures, a lot of them were much more spiritually developed than Europeans. And I think that the Europeans looked on to the practices that these people had and said, nope, this is devil work. They are communing with evil spirits when in fact they were probably just communing with their higher selves and doing the things that the Europeans probably so dearly longed to do for themselves. There's a Sanskrit word that comes to mind. I don't think I've mentioned the word Dharani. Dharani has a number of meanings in Sanskrit, but one of them that's relevant to our conversation in the moment is the idea of getting one's mind entirely around something. That's Dharani. It's helpful when one's perspective can move, as with a circle, to see something in 360-degree form. One is able to see and experience more than one might have out of one's particular individual perspective. This also ties back to where we are with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of houses of worship, each maintaining theirs is the only way to God. I have to revisit this idea of a conflict of interest here. It is a conflict of interest to separate us as a species from ourselves. It's a conflict of interest to say one's path is the only way that alienates a large portion of the rest of the world. To come together as one, we will enhance our spiritual capacity. And for each one who is able to make more progress in that regard, it becomes a little bit easier for all of the rest of us. So this isn't a small thing we discuss. This is the fate of humanity. We must understand we are all connected. We are all related. And we share an infinite mind. The universe is interactive. It will let us know. And we must acknowledge it accordingly. So in a prior discussion you and I were having about this topic, one of the analogies I think that we arrived at is that it's typical for an individual to have what would be considered a vertical relationship to God, yeah? Through prayer or through meditation, whatever form, making their connection to God. With God above and the lowly human worshiper below. That's right. And my observation when we had this conversation earlier was that we leave out half of our spirituality in the process. And your response to me was, can you elaborate on that? And my observation was, if we only hold ourselves as individuals in our individual sack of skin, 
we miss the opportunity to spiritually connect horizontally with every other sentient creature on the planet. Plants and animals included in that, as well as any other beings that might be between the human plane and the highest God. It happens. And I think this creates a very disempowered human. And in some religions, the more that you worship, the more you fall under God, with God as the master and the human as the slave. And I think that this really takes the power out of people's hands for them to improve their own lives and create the world they want to live in because they think that maybe they're at the mercy of God instead of working in concert with God. That is a lot. One of the things that I I think is important to sit with as far as spiritual development that we haven't yet talked about, and maybe we can introduce this for next time, is the idea of atonement and asking for forgiveness is an element that crosses the planes of most religions. It is an important element. I think at some point in our spiritual development, as you did, we realized that going to church is not enough in and of itself. One must continue to practice letting go of consciousness and in the process make atonement for the sins of our senses, our minds, our eyes, our ears our nose, our mouths, all keep us bound to the state of suffering we know to be true here on Earth. Scientists will also tell us they now know that generosity to others actually reduces our own neural response to suffering. I didn't know that. Helen Y. Wang did a breakthrough study in this last couple of years. Fear is another example along this line. The church has used a power over image of God. And yet I hold Jesus and what I've learned from the other great masters is that one should not hold fear. It is a highly destructive element that keeps one in one's consciousness, one's lower states of mind. The idea is to develop one's practice. And they call it a practice for a reason. When I hear people say, oh, I can't do it, I can't do it. It is a practice. And our attention is like a muscle in our body that can be strengthened. It takes strength in our attention to be able to gradually change our state of awareness and our state of realization and enlightenment. Now, I have definitely seen this in peers that I have, people who are deeply religious, just reading and regurgitating what the Bible says without ever being on a level of consciousness where they can understand it. I've even had my own experiences where I've read a Bible quote in 
a certain state of consciousness and then reread the exact same piece of paper in a higher state of consciousness and have gotten so much more from the words. So I think it's really important that we understand that there is a level of spiritual development that needs to happen before one can understand any religious text, not just the Bible. My hope has been, as with many other leaders of faith, that we can help one another across all of our different isms to come together as one. So I think that one of the big messages throughout the New Testament that is given by Jesus is to love our neighbor, uh, be kind. These are, are some really fundamental things. And I have witnessed in my own home country of the United States, so many people who are in church every single Sunday and cannot get this one small thing. <laughs> they are completely unable to treat others with love and kindness. If we truly understood that we are all related, that we are all connected, that we share access to an infinite mind and that the universe is in fact interactive, do you think that that might change our perspective? I think it would. That's our goal. And I think to your point, to tie back in earlier thoughts, this isn't about whether to go to church or worship on Saturday or Sunday. It is about bringing our higher self to each and every moment that we personally possibly can. And that then approaches what becomes a practice, as they say, 24-7. I'll look forward to picking up this conversation again with you here soon, Flo. As do I. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Again, my name is Florence Faith Matheson, and I am joining you from London, England. And my co-host, Johnny L. Whitmore, is joining you from Northern California. We hope that you learned something new or maybe remembered something you had forgotten. And we will see you next time on the next episode of Find Your Wavelength, presented by Torch Time Tales. You've been listening to Torch Time Tales presents Find Your Wavelength. If you're interested in finding out more about Torch Time Tales multimedia efforts, which include a book, an audiobook, a series of videos and interactive social media platforms, please visit torchtimetales.org.